This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. She wasn't an ideologue. She wasn't politically active. She was just a young woman who loved sports, who loved track, who wanted to go out there and compete and have a fair shot and have all the hard work that she'd poured in pay off. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Russell Moore and Nicole Martin. Today on our show, the changing landscape of women's sports, how institutions are evolving on policies related to transgender athletes. Then, what's happening on campus since the outbreak of the war? And more specifically, what's happening with campus ministries and with the hearts of students? Finally, the changing shape of prison ministry, how things are different post-COVID and what the future looks like. We've got some great guests for these conversations, so stay with us. Russell and Nicole, I'm guessing I'm the only one of the three of us that regularly follows the news in combat sports and related subjects. That would be correct. (laughs) That's what I figured. (laughs) Last month, the North American Grappling Association held a tournament in Georgia, and a number of the top female jiu-jitsu competitors boycotted the event. This was after several of them had raised concerns over the summer about having to compete against transgender men in previous tournaments. In fact, some of them didn't even know they were competing with transgender athletes until they were on the mats with them and grabbed by them. The result of that competition in October was that the winners of the women's categories were all biological males. When news broke that these female competitors had boycotted the event and that all males had won those competitions, the association initially actually doubled down on their policy and said, we're inclusive, this is what we do. But 24 hours later, they reversed course. They banned trans athletes from competing in the women's categories from there forward. So this is one of several recent examples of athletics organizations banning trans athletes from competing against women. USA Cycling has made a similar decision in July. FINA, the body that governs world swimming competitions, effectively banned trans athletes in 2022. This past week, governors in nine states have signed a letter asking the NCAA to do that. So to discuss this, I've asked a couple people to join us. First is Madeline Kearns. She's a staff writer at the National Review and a senior fellow for the Independence Women's Forum. Maddie, welcome back to the Bulletin. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. And also joining us is Representative Barbara E. Hart, a state representative in the Idaho legislature, uh, also a former Division I basketball player and uh, Division I women's basketball coach. She was head coach at Cal State Fullerton. Representative E. Hart, welcome to the Bulletin. Thank you very much. So tell us a little bit about your legislation and how that happened. How did you bring that to the legislature and how did you bring it across the finish line? Oh, absolutely. First off, let me just say that Title IX literally changed my life. Title IX was passed in 1972, and little did I know, as I was born in the 60s, grew up in the 70s, and people used to ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I literally would tell them that I wanted to play sports, and I was actually told that's not what girls do. And so it's just unique when you think of that background and how far we've come and the opportunities that I had to play collegiately. And D1 in the mid-80s, something that wasn't even a possibility in 1972. So being able to play sports and seeing what it's done for me in my life literally changed everything. So in 2020, when I had been listening and following for the last two years, actually it started in 2018, I had been following what was happening to the Connecticut high school gals who were forced to compete against two boys, two boys that had been running on the boys' teams and then decided to switch over. And they were absolutely dominating the women. And I just kept thinking, this isn't right. And literally in 2018, after my very first session, I was an evening, a Sunday evening, no doubt. And I was uh, just pondering and in deep meditation. And I kept thinking someone should do something about this. And I can say this here, given the news medium that we're talking on, 
the Lord literally spoke to me and let me know I should do something about it. I was mm-hmm. in a position. I was a lawmaker, and I also was a former D1 athlete and a coach, and I started working on it. It took me two years to be able to bring that legislation to Idaho. It was fought nationally because it was the first of its kind. The entire LGBT and ACLU and everyone across the nation converged on Idaho to try to prevent this legislation from passing and to try to prevent Governor Little from signing it. And the fact that Governor Little signed it was a pretty courageous thing at that point. Tell me what's happened since then, because this is something that a number of other states have addressed at this point. Obviously, the rhetoric is heated up. How is it going now? Interestingly enough, this particular subject matter, this issue, is one of the top one, two, or three issues, whether it's at the state level or the federal level, because no one wants to have their young women compete against boys or men. And so after that first year in 2021, we had eight more states pass it. And I was invited to travel out and testify in a number of those states and in others I did via Zoom. And then in 2022, we had nine more states pass it. This year, we had five more states pass it. And I'm happy to say that I've had a large part to do to be involved in many of these by being flown out and testifying and helping the legislators and having meetings with some of those in leadership to help get this legislation across because this is a winning issue. It wins whether you're Democrat or Republican. It polls actually literally polls at about 80 percent. And let me just tell you something that was Mm. key. In 2022, I was flown out with Save Women's Sports to the U.S. Swimming National Champion in Atlanta, Georgia, I saw Leah Thomas swim. I saw how big and how huge Leah Thomas was. And that's where when Riley Gaines, who is now both a friend and she and I have done many events together, when Riley Gaines had the courage to speak up and say, this isn't right, that was a huge turning point in our favor. And her voice really helped get some of these five states that passed it this year over the finish line. And it's it's one thing when we first started, very few people had the courage to speak up because of cancel culture. And I kept saying courage begets courage. And we've seen that now. And Riley Gaines has been a phenomenal advocate for us on this issue. Maddie, let me ask you, this is a story you've been following closely. Talk about that trajectory, because I remember that as well. I remember when people first began speaking out about Leah Thomas, they all spoke anonymously because there was such pressure to accept it. Can you talk about how that was and how that is and how you're seeing that shift over the last couple of years? Yeah, so the first instance of this I really remember was doing a piece for the Wall Street Journal in 2019 with Selena Soul, and she was a track athlete in the Connecticut case, high school track athlete. And a couple of young men had been allowed to compete, identifying as transgender, and it had completely displaced people like Selena. And Selena had many friends who were feeling the same way and really wanted support, wanted help, weren't getting it, were being told by their coaches they had to stay quiet, get in line, go along with it. And I was really struck in meeting her and chatting with her and and with her mum that she wasn't an ideologue. She wasn't politically active. She was just a young woman who loved sports, who loved track, who wanted to go out there and compete and have a fair shot and have all the hard work that she'd poured in pay off. That's all she wanted. And she was so courageous in speaking out at that point in those early days when, as you say, so few people were willing to go on the record. I think she was helped by the support of her mother. It was a real feisty woman, mama bear, and she was really supporting her. I think also part of it was she just didn't realise what she was taking on. She didn't realise the hate that was going to come her way by speaking out on this issue. And it's been amazing to watch her in the last few years, just getting braver and braver as courage calls to courage everywhere. And more young women like Riley Gaines and Paula Scanton and these young women who have been personally affected by this, coming out, putting their names to it, embracing all, all the winds that blow and just telling the truth. And I think that really is what's making the difference in this movement is it's not political. It doesn't matter whether you're Republican, you're Democrat, you're Christian, you're atheist. Everyone can see what's going on here. Is it true that maybe one of the new factors that makes this a bit more palatable is the idea of seeing women fighting against 
people who were born male in combat sports. When you are doing combat sports with someone who is biologically, physiologically stronger, bigger than you are, it feels like that is a shift. Does that play a role in this conversation advancing as well? I think definitely. I think that there's a few things going on here. One is a discussion about fairness, and that's obvious across different sports, be it swimming, track. Another one, and and probably the most immediately attention-grabbing, as as you rightly say, Nicole, is safety. There's a real concern about safety. Another aspect of this, of course, is privacy, girls' Mm -hmm. privacy in the locker room. Mm -hmm. Should they Mm be sharing locker rooms with people who have male genitalia. I don't think so. I don't think that's a reasonable request. And then the the final thing is actually just principle. And the principle here is that if you are arguing that, okay, we can mess around with people's hormone levels and we can have them so that they're a biological male, but they're impaired enough that we can say that this is like going to be fair or fair enough, you're basically saying that female excellence Mm. is equivalent to male mediocrity or even worse, impaired male performance. And that's a pretty sexist statement. And Mm -hmm. so I think even if you say, okay, we'll have separate logger rooms or even if play around with hormones, you can really just make an argument on principle and say, we have a different category for women because we want to celebrate women. We know they're different from men, but they're not inferior to men. They're just different. And because they're different and they have natural physical disadvantages in a male-female context, we want to have a female-only context where they can excel, where they can be celebrated. And so I think that's another important aspect of this that we shouldn't overlook. So you would think, Maddie, that if someone's crafting policies or legislation, they ought to actually go at the question of what is a woman? Um, Absolutely. Rather than saying, looking at it the way you would, for instance, anyone who has an unfair advantage with levels of testosterone or something like that. I think that is the absolute crucial thing here is that we're talking about sex. Now, people may have different ideas about gender and gender identity. Some people believe in this theory of gender identity. Some people don't. That's an interesting discussion that we can have. But when it comes to sports, there are certain contexts, and sports is one of them, where we really have to make it about sex. And there are two sexes. There's male and female. You can't change your sex. It's determined at conception. It's observed at birth. And this is what we need to base these policies on. And we need to be unapologetic and very clear and clinical, actually, in our language. We're not trying to be offensive, calling people things they don't want to be called, but male and female are just facts of life. And in the context of sports, it's important to focus on the biology because that's what is the determining factor here. In a sense, that comes back a little bit to, Barbara, what you were saying at the beginning. There are these opportunities that are provided for you as an athlete Because of excellence as a woman athlete, there were opportunities that were afforded you by Title IX. And I think what is so disturbing and so obvious is that because of these sex differences, those opportunities are going to evaporate over time as male athletes compete as women and dominate the categories. Everyone knew and understood why Title IX was passed. Everyone did. There was nothing confusing about it, but the other side, those primarily in LGBT and ACLU, are trying to do harm to literally to women. I believe this is all part of what's been happening with the deconstruction and the destruction of what it means to be a woman. And they're hitting all areas. And what's happened for us on our side is they hit an area that people, meaning parents in particular, are willing to step forward and fight. And some of these other issues that that the other side, and we're talking a very small percentage of people, but they dominated the issue in the manner in which they wanted it to proceed, but not with sports. They crossed the line with sports. And now we've been able to draw a line, to draw that demarcation in the sand, to say, no, enough is enough. And that's where we started to be able to engage and win on this issue. Because you know what? You're absolutely right. Competing against a male, not only is it not fair, and hence the name Fairness in Women's Sports, it is dangerous. And though my legislation only applies from basically school age, K-12 and higher ed, There's absolutely something to be said for these other sports 
outside. I, I would never step in a combat ring with a man. You absolutely run the risk of being injured, not just for a week or two, but literally for your life or better yet, you could be killed. This is at some point, we have women who are starting to say, no, they're not going to do it. Just look at Peyton McNabb. She's a friend of mine now. Peyton was the volleyball player at North Carolina. As I spoke with Peyton and Peyton's parents, and she's, Peyton said this, but she was hit so hard in the face that she could no longer function. Not only could she not finish her volleyball season, but she had a hard time finishing the school year, her senior year. She had to have an aide with her because she couldn't think straight. And she's still mm. paralyzed on part of her body. It's not functioning. That's mm. how hard and what happened when she was hit in the head by the male, by the boy. Would your counsel change any if you're dealing with, say, Massachusetts? where someone would say, we really can't win the gender identity debate right now, but what we can do is to come in and say, can't you see this isn't fair, that this isn't apples to apples? Would that change at all, or would you say it's better just to have this argument even if you lose? I absolutely would go forward and push it in every state. And you know why I push it in every state? Because we started to see the, see the results of this legislation on the Democrat side. When we first brought the legislation forward, it was viewed as being very political, Republican, Democrat. This past year has been a huge step forward. When Alabama brought, they had already signed their K through 12. So this past season, Alabama brought higher ed. 17 Democrats crossed over to support the legislation. When we were in North Carolina, we had one or two Democrats. In Texas, 12 Democrats crossed over, five voted present. And that's just happening more and more because Democrats are realizing, hey, this isn't good for me or my constituents. I would bring it, I would press the issue and let people stand where they were. Votes and uh, elections are coming up in a year. Bring that legislation. I think something that's been very effective in the UK and in Europe is this idea of having the male category as an open category, right? Mm. So what really happened was the reversal of what should have happened because the female category is the category that needs to be protected. Mm -hmm. It is the category that depends on sex exclusivity to be fair, to be safe, to guarantee women's right to privacy and so on. And okay, if you want to call yourself something other than a man, why don't you just come in this category that's for men and other? I agree with Barbara. I don't believe there is another, but it doesn't really bother me if that's a compromise that that would win. And that's what's been put forward by many UK sports. UK's I think in many ways led some of the international sports governing bodies on this issue. The international governing bodies for swimming, cycling and track now all have this female category and a male slash open category. And it's very difficult to argue with that. Of course, the trans activists are still not satisfied, but hey... There's a nod to your identity here and there's a safe, secure space for women. I think that's a pretty attractive way of framing it. This whole conversation feels very practical to me. My youngest is into gymnastics and she loves it. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, we live in Maryland. What would I say to my daughter if she found out that she was competing against a male. Because this, the complications are, Maddie, you named it. I want to empower my daughter to do gymnastics as a girl, not as less than, not as a separate category of weaker. I want her to do gymnastics as a girl because she's amazing. And also, there's no way I want her to compete in a way that would lessen who she is. So what messages should we give our girls? And as parents, how do we support and build up our girl athletes to see themselves as fully qualified and capable, but also not to put them in harm's way? It shouldn't be necessary to pass laws to protect girls. It should it, The sports governing bodies should be able to sort this out themselves, as should coaches. But of course, we've seen these really cowardly capitulations where it is necessary for lawmakers to step in. Barbara can speak to that. But I think on an individual basis, being able to be courageous yourself as a parent, as a member of your community, to be able to be emboldened and inspired by people like Riley Gaines, like Selena Soul, and 
teach that level of resilience. Now, obviously, every personality, every child is different, but at least setting that is something to aspire to. Like, you don't have to be put in this box. You don't mm-hmm. have to be put down in this way. You you can stand up for yourself. You do have rights. You have rights mm-hmm. to compete and to do so in a, in a safe and, and fair space. That's good. I would say the same thing. With the legislation, the ACLU has sued many of us. Here in Idaho, we were sued right away. It finally just made its way out of the Ninth Circuit, meaning they agreed with the injunction. So now we are appealing essentially here in just a little bit to the Supreme Court, which is where it was always headed. We knew that. But in the meantime, as some of these other states, as as we see the legislation being held up on appeals, Absolutely. We need our parents to stand up and we need our our kids to know that they can be courageous in speaking up because their parents are going to stand out with them. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happened with yeah. so many of these teams. So as, as you're looking what to do, if you end up in a situation where you decide to compete and they're having maybe it's a track or swimming event or something like that, and there's an award ceremony and you know that the male has a good chance of winning, bring your own trophies. Literally, I'm saying <laughs> bring your own trophies. And then when they have their award ceremony, you tell the people, for, hey, while they're having their awards, we're going to have the real one for the women over here. And hold your own award ceremony and give that first place finisher the first place trophy or a medal. And mm-hmm. just things like this that I think that we can start to do short mm-hmm. of just not competing. I know how hard that is to feel like you've signed up, you're going, and then you find out there's a man or a boy in the race and maybe you traveled a long ways and it's hard to turn back. So get some, do some other things to be creative and say, push back and say, no, this is wrong. Representative Barbara Ehart, thank you for joining us today, sharing your story. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Maddie Kearns, good to have you back. Russell and Nicole, and we will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. In the last few weeks on the campuses of schools like Cornell University, Stanford, and the University of Pennsylvania, students have been taking to the streets and sidewalks with heated and at times anti-Semitic rhetoric. On more than one occasion, there's been violence or threats of violence, all related to the Israel-Hamas war. And it's been a time of great upheaval for students trying to process the events they've seen, the images that have seen online. This week, CT's Emily Bells wrote on this topic, looking specifically at how campus ministries are responding to the tensions and to the needs of students at this time. Emily is joining us for this segment. Welcome, Emily. Good to be with you. Also joining us is Tammy McLeod, who serves as a chaplain for Crew, an interdenominational Christian ministry. And she also serves as the president of the Harvard Chaplains at Harvard University. Tammy McLeod, welcome to the Bulletin. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Emily, let's talk a little bit about what you found as you were reporting your piece last week in terms of how are college ministries responding to this moment? Yeah, so a lot of the tension has been happening at the Ivy League schools, and I live in New York City, and there was a student at Columbia who was assaulted, a Jewish student, and I was on the campus there a few days ago, and there are NYPD everywhere, which is very unusual. So that's the atmosphere, and I think what I found from talking to people working in campus ministry is that they're approaching this as ministering to students who are suffering, who are sad, who are angry, and not as trying to figure out the political right answer for everything. 
so I think that helped them cut through some of the tension and just be friends to these students, these Jewish students, especially who are experiencing anti-Semitism, but also Muslim students who sometimes felt like they were ignored in this situation. So I talked to different campus ministers, one at the University of Pennsylvania, who had reached out to Hillel, and Hillel was really thrilled to hear from him, to hear from these Christian students as well. Just this last week, they had dinner together, the Christian Union ministry and their students and Hillel students. And it was just a chance for them to be together and build a friendship and listen to what the students were saying and not share their opinions, but just be there and be alongside them. So I think that's something that's being repeated in kind of quiet ways across Mm -hmm. the country and not in the headlines as much. And for listeners who aren't familiar, Hillel is a Jewish campus ministry that's at college campuses all over the country. Tammy, along with serving in crew, you also serve as the president of the Chaplains Association. Can you tell us what are you seeing? What's happening across the ministries at Harvard? So the Harvard chaplains are volunteer chaplains from all the major world religions. We even have a secular humanist chaplain at Harvard. And we are trying as the Harvard chaplains to support especially the Jewish and Muslim chaplains. The Jewish and the Muslim chaplains are bearing the burden of the work right now. And so we're trying to do practical things to help sustain them in their work. They're working very long hours, getting very little sleep Hmm. and have a lot of emotional issues to deal with their students. We had a minute of silence at our last plenary, and then the Jewish and Muslim chaplains presented how they were doing and how their students were doing, and they talked as long as they wanted. And then the Buddhist chaplain responded with a peace chant, and then the Hindu chaplain responded with a peace chant. A Baha'i chaplain sang a song, a Baptist chaplain sang a song, and we closed with a moment of silence again. And it was my favorite plenary meeting of the whole year. The Harvard chaplains are really trying to support the Jewish and Muslim chaplains right now. What's going on with the students as well when they're coming to their chaplains? What are the burdens they're bringing? So the amount of loss on campus right now is palpable. Mm. I can just feel it when I walk onto the campus. Many Jewish students and Muslim students have lost many family members and friends, some to abduction, some to death. And just the grief itself Hmm. is palpable. Also, there's fear. Some of the students won't even gather together anymore Hmm. because Hmm. they don't feel safe. A parent of a Jewish student was telling me not long ago, and I've heard similar things from some Muslim parents, that they don't even want to really identify themselves as Jewish or Muslim in this time. Are you noticing that? any, or is it just not wanting to gather together in a group? I haven't personally. It sounds mostly like students are just afraid to gather because of some of the things that are happening. But one thing that stands out to me, because I'm the president of the Harvard chaplains this year, is watching the administrators deal with this is amazing. Mm -hmm. Like the amount of hours the heart that they have for the students going above and beyond, just trying to make safe spaces, trying to help different groups of students deal with their losses, trying to get resources to the students. I've just actually been amazed watching the commitment of the administration to students. It's been inspirational to me. It feels like College campuses are the perfect spaces for people to build meaningful relationships. I remember when I went to uh, college at Vanderbilt, it was not uncommon for me to meet a fellow student who had never met a black person in their entire lives. It was a great opportunity to build relationships. And I suspect that for a lot of college students, they've never had a relationship with a Jewish person. They've never met a Muslim student. And while it would seem to be the perfect opportunity to build relationships that can bring healing and tear down barriers, it also seems like the mix of isolation plus not really knowing how to make relationships plus growing hate plus mental health issues seems to be like this perfect storm of negativity. 
How, how do you all perceive the ability for college students to make relationships as part? Is it still part of the solution or are we gone beyond that? Yes, I actually think it's one of the great gifts of Harvard University is that it draws people from all over the world. And that means there are very different beliefs. And so when you have that situation, it's one of the things I love most about the campus is you can build relationships with people who have very different beliefs than you do. And that's one of the things I love about the chaplains. We have 45 chaplains, like I said, from almost every spiritual tradition that you could think of. And our beliefs are so different. But when we don't try to all meld, we come in with our beliefs, though they're different, and we have really close relationships. So the Muslim and the Jewish chaplain have been speaking from day one. Like they are just tracking all week long. How are you doing? How are your students doing in conversation? So I think one of the things that the Harvard chaplains can contribute more than anything is a model, how you can have very different beliefs, but you can have very close relationships. So I'm really hopeful. That's what we're trying to do with the students. I heard that too from an intervarsity minister at Cal Poly who was saying that these relationships don't happen overnight, that the campus ministry staff has to be intentional about building those relationships long term. Intervarsity has spearheaded an interfaith meeting of different campus ministry staff for years, and that's how they had close relationships, trusting relationships with the um, head of the Muslim Student Association and Hillel, the Jewish group, so that when this happened, they were already in a good relationship where the students could meet together and they had really good conversation and were able to have some of those empathetic moments together and just understand the Christian students who put their faith in action and understand another person's experience and be sympathetic to it. So I think his overall point was just start earlier those relationships and don't wait for some world crisis to make it happen. Yes, it was great. Hillel had multiple faith communities for a Sukkot dinner Hmm. right before the crisis. Hmm. And so we had Muslims... Jewish believers, Christians, and atheists all at the table at Hillel having spiritual conversations Hmm. for about an hour. It was so beautiful. And they were going to invite us to a Shabbat dinner next. Hmm. That was in the works. But now they're so exhausted trying to deal Hmm. with all the pain that they weren't able to do that this month. It was going to happen this Friday. Yes, I am excited to be able, when the pain is less palpable, to be able to enter back into those spaces again. That exhaustion, it seems to me, is key. I was talking a week or so ago to a Jewish rabbi friend who shares space with the mosque in their church. And he was saying they've been able to navigate this really well, but there's this adrenal alert of never knowing what's going to happen next. We've only been through a few weeks of this. What do you think this is going to look like if this lasts potentially for years? I think one of the things I'm most concerned about is compassion fatigue. We're trying to train our students, since you're on a campus where there's massive loss, be attentive. The biggest skill you need is listening. So we teach them the skill of inviting which means a person talks up to a certain point, and then instead of us saying something, we just say, what else? Or keep going, or is there anything else? To try to get the full story from the person. So we're trying to remind them that they don't need to solve the problems. They just need to bear witness to the pain. Last night I was sitting at a table with one who said, my teammate lost a family member, and she just stepped out of, the athletic team for a week and then entered back a week later. And we were just talking about what that's like as she's trying to journey with her teammate 
because if our students are listening to lots of these stories, if they don't have good boundaries, they won't be able to stay strong. They won't be able to listen to any more people. Yeah, and I've heard the same thing in interviews that campus ministers are so exhausted, like many pastors, but since COVID with successive current events that they have to respond to. And then, of course, like Tammy's saying, that extends to Christian students feeling paralyzed. And I think we're trying to just tell very simple stories on the news team that can be helpful for people to see that this is not some huge cliff that they have to climb, but there's just small dinners or conversations that they can have that can be living out their faith. A lot of this has implications on the long-term mental health of students. So these are the students who didn't get to graduate because of COVID. It would have been 2020. These are the students that watched mass shootings. And these are the students that are just trying to find their sense of purpose and identity. And it probably feels like for them, there's always something. It makes me wonder, what can churches do now to prepare students and families for the resilience that's going to be necessary? How can churches start now to prepare families and students coming home for for the holidays? What can we do to really create good mental health practices with hopefully faith-filled resilience? If we can help people in churches realize that listening is going to be one of their most powerful things to do over the holidays and with this upcoming one with Thanksgiving, just giving students space to share their stories and not trying to fix them or read our autobiography into their life as they say it. But we just use, again, that skill of inviting. I think that would be one of the best preparations. And also with what I talked about, compassion fatigue, if people can understand that bearing witness to the pain doesn't mean I have to solve that problem. (laughs) Like I don't take it on me. Then I think they'll be less afraid to enter in to be really great listeners because they know that their main role is bearing witness. And so we just did with our top leadership team at Harvard, Mental Health and Jesus. That's something that Cruz created to help the body of Christ. It's just a free online resource to deal with the mental health crisis. And we're trying to help our students identify feelings and speak of them and not push them down. I so appreciated your piece, Emily, and I I so appreciate you being here with us today, Tammy, because it gives us a window into a reality that is not quite what you capture when you just follow the stories online. Because of course, online is the clickbait, the videos, the conflicts, the fights, there's so much more and there's so much more pain behind all of that. So I'm grateful for your time. I'm grateful that you could come and share your story with us. Emily, I'm grateful for your reporting as well. We will be right back. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, A Bounty Hunter's Journey to Faith, Hope, and Redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. A couple of weeks ago, on October the 26th, the state of Texas stayed the execution of an inmate named Will Spear, pending further review. Spear was 16 when he was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Then, in 2001, he was convicted of murdering a fellow inmate and sentenced to death row. Today, he leads worship and prayer every morning for his fellow inmates on death row, part of a program known as the God Pod, where he serves as the inmate coordinator for the program. 
Emily Bells covered this story for CT, one of several stories recently about changes in prison ministry in recent years. She joins us for this conversation along with Heather Rice Minus. Heather is the president of Prison Fellowship, where she works to build partnerships with churches, strengthen relationships between incarcerated parents and their kids, and advocate for restorative criminal justice. Heather Rice Minus, welcome to the Bulletin. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Emily, let's start with this story of Will Spear. Tell us a little bit about who he is and what drew you to tell that story. I went into reporting this story fully expecting that Will Spear would be executed the day or two after we published the story. Texas doesn't grant clemency very often, and he wasn't granted clemency, but he was given a stay of execution. So he is still leading ministry on death row. The death row that he's on is all solitary units. So these men are in solitary confinement 22 of 24 hours a day. But they're able to do worship by singing between the walls. They're able to listen to Will Spears' sermons over the radio. He became a Christian last year through a new program in Texas Department of Corrections where an inmate applies to be part of a faith-based training program. And it's essentially a program that I think is a good model for prison ministry that it showed rehabilitation and redemption can happen. So he has become a real leader on this particular death row. But I think that part of his story interested us on the news team because it highlighted a trend, which is that more prisoners are leading prison ministry behind walls. And it's not just outside groups that are coming in and doing ministry, but Especially since COVID, there's a lot more prisoners who have taken on that responsibility themselves. Heather, maybe you could talk a little bit about how COVID changed prison ministry and how maybe this story reflects some of these larger changes. Yeah, COVID brought about a lot of lockdowns and not an ability for volunteers and ministries to get into a lot of facilities. It ravaged a lot of the communities working and living in prison as you can imagine. And of course, that exasperated already really strained working staffing levels for corrections officials. But what we saw that was good out of that, which Emily alluded to, is that God's at work behind bars, whether we are there or not, coming in as ministries like Prison Fellowship. And I think it really gave an opportunity for the indigenous incarcerated church to use their gifts and to lead in worship and to lead in discipleship. And as we've been able to come back in to a lot of facilities across the country, we're seeing that revival happening inside the walls. And I think it's having a profound positive impact on the church outside as a result. I love the way that you framed this as an indigenous worship experience that's happening, whether or not outsiders are coming in. It always strikes me that prison ministry is so very complex. On my context, you can't talk about prison without talking about race. You can't talk about prison without talking about families and the complexities of who's there and who's not, and about children and about what reentry looks like and about all of the loss that happens with reentry. For a lot of churches, I think they may not participate in prison ministry because of these complexities. So how have you navigated these complexities? And how do you think churches can better navigate these complexities, especially when some of these complexities would make us want to run away as opposed to drawing closer? And before you do, let me add one as well. I think there are a lot of churches that are reluctant to engage with prison ministry that is led by imprisoned people because they're thinking, is this somebody trying to get a lesser sentence? Is this somebody trying to get clemency? How do we know if we can really trust this? Great questions. And I agree. The justice system is complex. And in fact, even just saying the justice system, we actually have 51 different justice systems in this country at the state level, federal level, and that's not even including local jails. So there's such complexity to to access and to the racial dynamics and all that you said, Nicole. I really encourage churches, if you want to tip your toe in, because the Bible is very clear. We are supposed to be involved in this. Look at Matthew 25. Look at Hebrews 13. You will see we are supposed to be in prison and caring about and thinking about and remembering those behind bars. But if you want to dip your toe in, I would encourage churches to think about 
Angel Tree Christmas. Prison Fellowship's Angel Tree program serves over 250,000 children with an incarcerated parent every year. And we match you with families who have an incarcerated loved one in your community. And so this is a great opportunity to really see the impact of incarceration in your zip code and your church body may then grow to think, you know, what's really needed for a child who has an incarcerated parent is not just a gift, it's a healthy parent. And, mm-hmm. and then you can walk along that journey to going inside. And Russell, to your question, I think I would say we just need to get the church proximate to the church inside because mm-hmm. I can remember actually getting a chance to visit with some women on death row in Alabama just a, a year ago and being so caught off guard by their joy and the community that they had built. And four of the five women knew Jesus and talked about the internal hope that they had. Then I walk into worship in the chapel with all the women in the general population, and we're partnering there with Church of the Highlands, who has in-church prison campuses in over 20 prisons in Alabama. Just an incredible ministry that they've started there. And as we're worshiping, I felt the still small voice of the Holy Spirit say to me, you'll never understand the depth of their devotion, and you get to reap the benefit of their costly surrender. So there's something we have to learn from the church inside. And at this moment in the church at large in America, I am certain we have something to learn and gain and be revived from that. And that's just like Jesus did, right? Where did he go to start his church? To the marginalized, the lepers? (laughs) Why should we think it's any different? In my reporting since COVID, talking to a lot of frontline ministries, their regular volunteer base has severely declined. Mm -hmm. And I think that the prison ministries that I've talked to have COVID shut down a lot of their in-person stuff. And the regular people who are doing prison ministry in-person dropped off. And it's very difficult, depending on the facility, to reestablish getting approval, getting through the paperwork and all that with the regular volunteers. So I think that's one thing I hear from ministries is that they really want their consistent volunteers back. And that is a huge need. No, that's spot on, Emily. I think a number of our facilities that have reopened are now, we've lost some volunteers who were faithful before COVID who aren't interested in coming back. And so we've got to refill those spots with people who can really be faithful to walk alongside people, not just for a one-time event, but for long-term discipleship. Heather, I think maybe the first thing that you and I worked together on many years ago was the issue of shackling pregnant Mm -hmm. women, imprisoned Mm -hmm. pregnant women as they were giving birth. Since then, there have been a number of religious liberty questions about praying with people on death row and so forth that have gone to the courts. We don't want the government to do prison ministry But is the government getting more out of the way or more in the way from people who are trying to care for prisoners? I see a a mix of both. I think it really depends. There's really so many different justice systems, and each one has its own policies to navigate. In some states, we are very much welcomed in. We have staff who are going in every day to run our signature program called the Academy which takes people through a year-long 500 hours of curriculum on character-based training, open to anyone of any faith or no faith at all, but we're teaching from a Christian perspective. And so it's great that there's so many states, majority of states are welcoming us in to do that. But we do have jurisdictions where it's difficult. And a lot of times I think there are religious liberty issues at stake or discrimination, but also states, I think, and some jurisdictions worry about their budget line item for programs they're running themselves. And in some states, there's more of a Unitarian type program being offered for all faiths that the government or a contractor is running. And so sometimes I think they worry about supplanting that. That is also what I've heard. Every time I call a prison ministry leader, they tell me that each facility is different, that some wardens really see the benefit of having these ministries behind bars and have expanded that. And then others since COVID have used COVID as a way to keep ministries out and just shut down these programs altogether. Hmm. So I've emailed with some prisoners who have said that they, even when we were all back to our normal lives, they were not having any outside Hmm. programs coming in. So I think it's, there's a real big spectrum of what is happening behind bars right now. To that point of the spectrum of what's happening in the cases where there's a strong established prison ministry, either as a local community or with outside support, when those prisoners are released, 
I've heard stories of how difficult that reentry can be. I'll never forget, I was serving a church in Newark, New Jersey, and there was a newly released man who had come to be part of our congregation. Again, everyone was so excited, and you could just see week after week how difficult it was for him. He would show up early and no one else was there. He would be so committed to his faith and to community. And people were just like, we'll make it if we can. So it just feels, you you go from this very close-knit, devoted community to back into regular Christendom where people may or may not care. How do we soften that reentry process, knowing all that they've lost in terms of everything, in terms of their identity of coming into a family again and voting and all of that. How do we better support them as they come out when we match that with the support that we hopefully can provide them while they're in? I think that's spot on. Some of um, my colleagues at Prison Fellowship who have been incarcerated and experienced ministry in prison and the church inside have said, I was devastated to come home. And the level of devotion and worship and memorizing scripture that I experienced in prison, like I've just not ever found it again in the outside Mm. church. But that goes back to my point of let's get the church outside involved with the church inside. We've got something to learn from each other. But as people come home, I think really building a culture of welcome, that we are one beloved community. And I've been so encouraged. I I go to church here in Washington, D.C. at National Community Church. I've been so encouraged to see what they've done, where we've started a love justice group. And from the pulpit, every couple of months, we say, hey, if you're impacted by incarceration, you're a returning citizen, you have a family member, we have a welcome pack for you. And in fact, we host Second Sunday lunches where we're going to break bread together and hear what your needs are and connect you to resources in the city. If we could have, and, and I know we do, we've got more and more churches who are stepping up to that plate to really provide the fellowship and the resource linkage that needs to happen. We will see more people reunite with their families, continue their journey with Christ outside, find jobs, and really find the fellowship that only the church can provide. And I would venture to guess that we would not be having this conversation at all if it hadn't been for one man, Chuck Colson, who really brought this to the attention of evangelical Christians all over the country, which to me, I think, is a reminder of what one person, I'm not just thinking about Mr. Colson, I'm thinking about the people who shared Christ with him and then who worked with him afterward, how what one person in one little ministry can actually do to change a church, to change a, a world. Mm-hmm. Heather Rice-Minus, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. I, I think this is a fascinating and, and important work that you're doing. So thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me and thank you for covering this. Emily Bells, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you for your coverage on this story. Yeah, great to be with you. We will be back next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced by Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Post-production by TJ Hester. Our art for this episode is by Rick Shooks. Music by Dan Phelps. And social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.